Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Hey, folks. In just the past week, multiple federal judges have struck down President Biden's student debt cancellation program. The Biden administration has said it will appeal those decisions, but will it be successful? And through new reporting, we've learned that while in office, Donald Trump repeatedly expressed his desire to have the IRS investigate his political enemies. Also, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office has said it will not bring charges against Rudy Giuliani. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation, and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And by the way, folks who sign up now get an additional benefit. Free access to a new audiobook featuring the audio from all nine January 6th hearings. I contributed a forward to the audiobook, which was produced by Pushkin Industries, the audio company founded by Malcolm Gladwell. So sign up. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So let's talk about an issue that is unrelated to January 6th, unrelated to Rudy Giuliani. Not a criminal law matter, but one of great importance. It's a major question, <laughs> if you will, which will be an interesting phrase, as you'll discover in a, in a moment. And that is the controversial decision that the Biden administration has made to cancel some quantity of student debt, right? This is something, by the way, I don't know your view, put the law aside for a moment. I think many reasonable people think it's a good policy and it's something that should have been done. I think also there are reasonable people who think it's not a good policy and not an equitable policy, uh, given that lots and lots of people did pay their debt, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to get into that debate, but I wanna say at the outset, this legal debate and this legal controversy is not really on its face about whether it's a good or bad policy, although it is arguable that some of the judges who've been ruling against it maybe have in the back of their minds a dislike of the policy, which is affecting how they deal with the law on it. Yeah, I think that that's fair, and it's a really good framing for this issue because obviously student debt cancellation was something that the Democratic Party had talked about. Elizabeth Warren was a big proponent of it. But what this policy actually is, is not that broader debt cancellation. It's a narrower version of that. It uses something called the HEROES Act, which authorizes certain kinds of actions during national emergencies or crises in in times of war. And here the action was taken based on Trump's declaration in 2020 that COVID was a nationwide emergency. And so the education department makes this decision that it will cancel $10,000 worth of loans for people who have federally held student loans, $20,000 for people who have Pell Grants because typically they're viewed as being more financially needy. And of course, there's there's a salary cap. You have to be making less than $125,000 a year to qualify or living in a household with less than a quarter of a million dollars of income. But this was, I, I think, legitimately in the mind of the administration designed to address COVID. 
as opposed to being the broader policy enactment. But as you say, Preet, this is, this is a policy question, and reasonable people can differ about whether it was a good choice or not, which is what leads us to the litigation over it, I guess. And the Biden people absolutely knew and expected that there would be litigation. I think they have the better argument, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's not without controversy, and it's not without complaint, I think, from reasonable people. For one thing, and I don't know how much this matters in your mind or not, the 2003 law, and this is sort of a basic principle we should address for the audience, you know, there are laws that are enacted, and at the time of the enactment of the law, there's sort of a heartland of cases that they think, that the enactors think the law should apply to, right? So the Racketeering Act, RICO, was passed many years ago. What people had in mind in the heartland of case was that it would be used to go after mobsters. That was the inspiration for the law. That was the origin of the law. But over time, based on the text of the statute and interpretations of the statute, it was expanded to go after all sorts of other kinds of miscreants also. And those gambits by law enforcement have been upheld in the courts. So that happens all the time. It's not unusual, but it causes some people dismay. Here in 2003, you know, the inspiration and origin of that law was to benefit members of the military in times of crisis. And some of the people who are arguing against the cancellation of this debt are saying it's far afield from military soldiers and service people. Does that have any bearing on the question, you think? You know, it really doesn't. As, as you point out, it's a matter of statutory interpretation, the breadth of a statute, and it's not at all unusual for statutes to morph to fit new situations. That's sort of been the legacy of the law as the internet has developed and pre-internet statutes have been expanded, sometimes maybe tortured a little bit to fit modern day situations. So on its face, no, that alone I don't think is a problem. There's a legitimate declaration of an emergency that would bring this action within the statute. And that's really the basis for the action. The, the question here, and, and the question that I think is legitimately litigated is whether Congress in essence, intended to grant this authority to the executive branch. Congress is saying, "Let our executive branch, you can have some of our power. You can do this without coming back to us. We're going to give you this grant of authority. And the issue that the litigants challenging the Biden actions move are making is that they've gone too far. They've exceeded the authority that Congress either gave them or had the ability to give them. So why are we talking about this now? Well, it remains a controversy. And there have now been adverse court decisions. There's a decision out of Texas, federal court. There's a decision out of Missouri. And there's an appellate court decision that is basically enjoining the program out of the Eighth Circuit, that all in the last number of days. To me, the most interesting issue here, and we can debate it and discuss it in a second, is whether or not there are people who don't qualify for this forgiveness, who have standing to challenge it, Right. Standing is something we've talked about many times on the show with respect to abortion and the Texas law and other matters as well. To remind folks, standing is a very, very important legal concept. There's a you know, conservative member of the Supreme Court who once said it's maybe one of the most important legal concepts in figuring these kinds of questions out. Standing means what? That a plaintiff, one, shows an injury in fact, right, some harm. Two, that the injury is fairly traceable to the wrongful conduct being alleged, right? So actual harm connected to the conduct, and three, that the courts are able to provide at least some redress for their injuries. 
Now here, you have people who are saying the fact that some people are getting this benefit and I am not getting this benefit because they don't qualify because among other things, the standard is arbitrary and capricious. That constitutes a harm that's traceable to the government's misconduct and we want some redress. And there are problems, hopefully this is not too in the weeds, there are problems with all of those arguments for standing. I think the balance of experts agree that standing argument is not very good. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, first, let me say this is pretty in the weeds, and it's a place that you and I don't always go. We've touched on this issue before. For instance, when there was the uh, national moratorium on evicting people, this was also an issue. I think it's good for us to do a little bit of a deep dive on standing right now, just so people can see the trend in the law. This is a really tough case for standing, because in essence, what the court says is, well, you know, there should have been a comment process on the Biden administration's decision in this area. Before they took action, there should have been a comment process under the Administrative Procedure Act, and they didn't do that. So these plaintiffs were harmed by their inability to comment and say that in the case of one plaintiff who was excluded from relief, that they should have received it. And in the case of another plaintiff who received only partial relief, they weren't a a Pell grantee, so they got $10,000 of relief, not $20,000. And they should have been able to argue that they should get that full increment of $20,000. And the problem with that, well, right off the bat, is that the HEROES Act doesn't require, doesn't even provide for the administration to use that comment process. So when you say that the first requirement for standing is that there is an injury in fact, That is something that these plaintiffs cannot demonstrate. And the standing issue, frankly, should have been decided right there. There was no need for this judge to go any further. But he did, and in a pretty inflammatory way, as you pointed out to me over the weekend. Yeah, I'm going to come back to it in a moment. I think there's sort of a a philosophical concept that I think people can understand whether you're steeped in the law or not. Ordinarily, you have standing if someone takes an action and it directly harms you. Here, there are people who are saying the harm that's coming to me is the benefit you're giving someone else, right? It's indirect. And ordinarily, just because someone gets a benefit, and by the way, the government provides all sorts of benefits to all sorts of people, right? If you, I'm not saying these are directly analogous, but just so you understand the general framework and concept, if you have a house and you have a mortgage, you get a mortgage tax deduction. If you rent an apartment, you do not. And I don't think that people who rent apartments would have standing in some universe to object and say they were harmed because some other people in adjacent circumstances, and maybe this is too outlandish an example and you can shoot it down. No, it's a really good one. I like this. Now, there are other examples of things that we've talked about on the show also that look like someone is saying, well, the benefit going to this other group of people works a direct harm to me. For example, the case against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, right? You have a class of people who are saying the affirmative action program and the consideration of race in admissions is working a benefit for some people and a disadvantage to me, and so that's a harm. Now there, there's no standing problem. There are other problems, but there's no standing problem because why? There's an allegation of a violation of a constitutional right, right? Equal protection, because you're talking about a race-based preference. That's what puts it in controversy. That's what puts it in the court. We think the court is going to get it wrong, but it doesn't have a threshold problem like this does. As a general matter, as Steve Laddick put it in a piece he wrote recently, like it or hate it, 
when the government hands out a benefit to a class of individuals, that doesn't usually injure other individuals discreetly. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, it really is right. And the, the underlying point here, and I like Steve Vladek's analysis a lot. He's a professor at the University of Texas who studies the court extensively. The point is, not everything that happens can be addressed through a lawsuit. And there's even more specificity on that here, and it comes from some of the most conservative members of the Supreme Court who talk about the fact that not every complaint that someone has that the government is acting unlawfully is the sort of thing that needs to be resolved with a lawsuit. Sometimes it's just a matter for the political process. Scalia wrote a long time ago, 30 years ago, that vindicating the public interest, including the public interest in government observance of the Constitution and laws, is a function of Congress and the chief executive. And this is one of those situations where Congress has the ability to stand up if it believes it's been affronted by the Biden administration. And if it believes they've gone too far with the grant of power, then Congress can do something about that. People who lack standing certainly aren't the right people to advance these claims. I mean, the other weird thing, if you're thinking about that third prong of what it takes to have standing and and articulate standing in a court, as you mentioned, is this idea of redress. What is the redress here? The court is already saying that it's a violation of law or likely a violation of law to forgive this debt. It's not saying that the injured party that has standing, the people who are not able to get forgiveness, it's not saying they should get forgiveness, I don't think. That would be inconsistent with the rest of the court's opinion. They're just saying they have standing to stop the benefit from being given to one group of people without being able to articulate a way for the disadvantaged group, the suing group, to get the same advantage. Does that make sense? It does, and and ultimately the court just contorts itself so badly to get to this result that it's clear that it's the kind of results-oriented opinion that no federal judge should engage in. But in this case, we've got a judge who wanted to find a way to deconstitutionalize the Biden administration's program and so stood doctrine on its head to get there. And the result is an opinion that is being just largely derided Interestingly enough, not just among academics, but on Twitter, which is an awfully interesting place to have discussions about standing with limited character limits, right? Especially lately. But I think it's important for us to understand on the principle that not everything that happens in modern society needs to spawn a lawsuit. That's maybe a good place for us to advance our understanding of how our system is supposed to work. The plaintiffs in this case, as we mentioned, are two people who are uh, student loan holders. And obviously, folks like that very often lack the financial resources to bring lawsuits like this on their own. In this case, the lawsuit is bankrolled by something called the Job Creators Network. It's a conservative advocacy group that has done the bankrolling here, founded by the conservative owner of Home Depot and funded in part by another conservative family foundation. I think, though, that this is par for the course. This is the kind of approach to this litigation that we see where it has less to do, perhaps, with the individual parties and more to do with folks who want to advance these sorts of claims. And that, I'm not sure, is something that's disturbing here. Some folks have made a lot about that. We see that on the more progressive side of the aisle as well, and it reflects the fact that modern litigation is very costly. Yeah, I think that's all, that's all correct. I mean, a lot of times, causes are advanced and 
financed and bankrolled by organizations that have a particular point of view, sometimes very conservative, sometimes very progressive. That's just the way it is. That's how some of these things get litigated, as you and I have discussed before. You said a second ago something interesting, that the courts have turned doctrine on its head. I joked earlier in a way that probably (laughs) did not make sense to people about the phrase major question. Major question. And there's something that has been developed in recent times called major question doctrine. Do you want to spend a final minute talking about this major question doctrine that the conservatives have developed? I do. It's a recent development, right? It's not something that was on the radar screen a decade ago. This really is getting into an arcane approach to the law. But there's a doctrine called the Chevron Doctrine, which traditionally has said that... Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Thank you.